All right, so about a little over 3,000 years ago, there's a story that you may be familiar with, okay? There's a, um, a boy named David who goes on to be King David who's born around um, 1035 B.C., before Christ, okay? He gets to be about 10 years old, and then Samuel comes and declares that David is going to be the next king of Israel, and there already is a king of Israel. And the fascinating thing about that to me is that at that point in time, this family of shepherds, they didn't decide to go and overthrow the king or take the throne at that point. They just went on with their normal lives. They just kept being shepherds. And so time goes on a little bit, and we get to where uh, David is about 15 years old, and Israel has gone to war with the Philistines, okay? So the scene is, and you're probably familiar with it, you've got the Israelites on one side of a mountain, or there's a valley, and Israelites are over here, and over there are the Philistines. And every morning, a big giant of a man named Goliath comes out, and he shouts the same thing to the Israelites. He says, Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across to the Israelites. Why are you all coming out to fight, he called. I'm the Philistine champion, but you are only servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight me. When Saul and all the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. So even the current king of Israel, King Saul, is not willing to go out and fight this man. Okay? You with me so far? All right. So David has brothers. He's the youngest. He has older brothers. And David's father sends him to the war to go check on the brothers. And David shows up and he sees this scene, the Israelite, this, I mean the uh, Philistine Goliath who comes out and he shouts at the Israelites. And he really can't believe that the Israelites are doing absolutely nothing about this. But I don't want you to lose the significance of how huge this man was. Okay, so... You know, I was thinking the other day that when, when Kenny preaches, you know, he just reads the scripture and tells us what it says, and we're like, that is so brilliant. Oh, my. He just read the words, y'all. And then when, and Keith's like that too, and then when Dawn speaks, Dawn is like 142 characters of brilliance. Like everything she says, I just want to tweet it real fast. And then I speak, and it's like the circus comes to town. And not the good circus, like the circus that you get the free tickets for at the Wendy's. That's the circus that this becomes, okay? So, all right, Keith, come here, because you're the tallest guy. How much do you weigh, by the way? It doesn't matter. Get on this ladder. <laughs> That's going to be close. All right, anyway, so Keith is how tall? I can't hear you. Okay, 6'5". All right, this is approximately... Get on, go. Scared. Whatever, you're being a pansy. Get up there. All right? So he's 6'5". That says it's three feet, but I measured it. It's not quite three feet. Anyway, this is close to nine feet, okay? So the description of Goliath is in the scripture, all right? It's in 1 Samuel chapter 6, 17. Okay, and it says that he was over nine feet tall. All right, over, he's taller than that, Okay. He wore a bronze helmet and had a bronze coat of mail, which is like this metal thing, which weighed 125 pounds. And 
Like, I thought about getting on your back because I only weigh like 105, but I was like, no, we won't do that. So he also wore bronze leg armor and carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was as heavy and thick as a weaver's beam tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. His armor bearer walked. Okay, so then I was thinking like, I mean, I don't have a 15-pound spearhead. So I went and I bought... Um, bags of sugar, and I duct taped them to this thing. So this is 12 pounds, because you can't buy five pounds of sugar. Did you know they changed the bags of sugar? They're not five pounds anymore. They're four pounds, and they've messed with the ice cream, too, and don't think I haven't noticed. But anyway, okay, so this is 12, that's 12 pounds, and that's like, you're, so Goliath was strong. I'm not sure what's going on up here, but anyway, so Goliath's huge, and that's like what he uses to spear people with. And then David shows up, and he sees this whole scene, and he says, I'll go and fight him. And he's a 15-year-old boy, and it says that his complexion, it was called, it says it's ruddy, and so he had beautiful eyes, and he was about 15 years old, and he kind of had a reddish-like complexion. If we only had somebody that kind of fit that description, it would be so cool. He could come up on stage and hold this big, thank you, Ethan, that's so sweet of you. <laughs> Beautiful eyes. He was the first one I thought of. Here you go. Thanks for, he just winked at me. Um, so you've got, he is red, yeah. So are you there. Okay, so you've got David and you've got Goliath, who's huge, and he's, 15, Ethan's 16, but it's close. You get the point, okay? So the thing, I got to thinking about how, Goliath, you better get it under control. Um, he was just a shepherd boy, but the scripture makes a point to say that he had fought off bears and lions and not just like, you know, shot him with a slingshot. It said that he grabbed him by the, by the jaw and he would beat him to death. Like that, call Peter, I guess. I don't know. But that's, this is not your normal 15-year-old, okay? He's, God has prepared him in ways that he, he didn't even know about. He didn't even realize this was going on. And so it says that, that David then, you know, you're probably familiar with the story. He picks up five smooth stones. He puts them in his slingshot. And it says that he started across the valley towards the Philistine. And so David replies to Goliath at this point, And he says, you come at me with sword, with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, who you have defiled, defied. <clears throat> Today the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you and cut off your head. He doesn't have a sword, by the way. And then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals. The whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. And it says that David ran quickly to meet him. And I thought about how... I don't know what David thought. I don't know if even, you know, even when we have our greatest amount of courage, sometimes there's the, that heartbeat when you think, what am I doing? But I, I don't even know if he thought that. I think he just went boldly out to where Goliath was, and he, he slings his slingshot, and he hits him in the head, and Goliath falls. And then it hasn't at that point mentioned Goliath's sword, 
But then it says that David took Goliath's sword. You're not going to touch this. Don't get your hopes up. And he cut off Goliath's head. Don't think I'm going to put this in their hands. You out of your mind? But he, t- I, don't, I mean, this is a pretty big sword. Ethan really wants to hold it, but he's not going to get to. Don't you? Okay. But he took Goliath's sword and he cut off Goliath's head and then carried it around with him. Don't forget that part. This was huge. He didn't have his own sword. He had to go take Goliath. And then he used Goliath's own sword to cut off his head and defeat the, the Philistines. And then it says that, of course, there was great victory. And the Israelites destroyed the Philistines. And everything was wonderful and fantastic and fabulous. Thank you very much for participating. Probably. Ethan is a little bigger than David. Yes. Aren't you skinnier than Goliath, he says. Okay. Good job, e. Thanks. All right, score another one for David. All right. Thank you so much. Here, just set that right there. And I use sugar on purpose, you know, because I was going to use weights, but I really think our exercise numbers have dropped since, well, since Valley and Will moved to Texas. And so I thought, well, next time you're in the grocery store and you see a bag of sugar, mm-hmm, you'll think about it. Probably not in a good way, but anyway, nonetheless. So shortly after that, then... Um, David, well, actually immediately after David kills Goliath, he meets Saul's son, Jonathan, and they become great friends. I, every time I think about um, David and Jonathan, I think about Kenny and Keith. Um, there's a little age difference between David and, and Jonathan, and I mean, Kenny's obviously much, much older than I am, so he's much older than Keith is, and... But they had a great bond, and they were like brothers, and they, w- they were so, so very close. But you fast forward a couple of years, so all that David and Goliath's in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, and then we move forward to chapter 20, and King Saul has become incredibly, for the love, um, he has become incredibly jealous of David. David is victorious at everything he does. The people love him. He's victorious in battle. Everything he does, he's successful at. And Saul absolutely hates him, but he keeps him close by so that he can keep an eye on him at all times. And there's several times that it's mentioned, I talked to Kenny about this because it says that a spirit of the Lord, a tormenting spirit of the Lord came to Saul oftentimes, and David would come and play the harp to try to soothe his soul. And I, we talked about how that, that's got to be conviction. It's just conviction over his life. And I thought, how many times have I been convicted and I've turned the radio up so I couldn't hear it, or I've turned the TV on, or I've tried to be distracted so I couldn't hear the Lord talking to me. But in all of that, Jonathan doesn't want to believe that Saul wants to kill David. Now, at one point in time, Saul has taken a spear and thrown it and literally tried to kill David. And I would think that pretty, you know, that settled things for me. If somebody's thrown a spear at my head, I pretty much am settled on the fact that you hate me. But Jonathan wants to be sure. And so they set up this plan where Jonathan will go to Saul and find out for certain if he intends to kill David. So there's this banquet that is happening, this festival that's happening, and David doesn't go. And Saul questions Jonathan, hey, where's David? Why is he not here? We're having a feast. Why is he not here? 
And Jonathan says, well, he went to be with his family. He went to give sacrifices with his brothers. He's gone to be a part of things with him. And Saul goes absolutely ballistic. He loses his mind. In 1 Samuel chapter 20 and verse 30, Saul bold with rage at Jonathan. He said, you stupid son of a whore. He swore at him. And I thought, I didn't know those kind of words were in the Bible. Like, I keep telling you that the Bible is very interesting if you will read it like a novel and not like a textbook. But I mean, seriously, and then I thought, what if that, what if she was sitting there? Like, I'd have turned around and been like, excuse me, but you wouldn't because he's the king and then he'd just kill you too. But he's absolutely furious. And he said, don't you think, do you think, I don't know, that you want him to be king in your place? Shaming yourself and your mother. As long as that son of Jesse is alive, you'll never be king. Now go and get him so I can kill him. And Jonathan and David have worked out this little code, this little signal. And Jonathan gives the signal, and David knows it's not safe to come back. And so David runs away. He just completely leaves. And I can't imagine what that had to be like. Because if you think about all that God had set up for David, he's a nobody shepherd. He is deemed to be the next king of Israel. That's not happening the king who is currently in power hates his guts and is trying to kill him. And now David's run away. He's run away from his best friend. He's run away from his family. He's run away from his brother. He's, he's, right, he's on the run for his life. I don't, I don't know. I'm just overwhelmed, I guess, by thinking God had done so much. And yet running to God wasn't David's first option. He just decided to run away. He just ran. He just sort of took matters in his own hands. And I, this story, I keep getting hung up on this part right here, so it's going to take me a second. Um, if you've got a Bible, I want you to look at 1 Samuel chapter 21. I, I have read 1 Samuel 21, I suppose, because I have been working through this through the Bible in a year. We won't talk about how many years it's taken me to do that. But um, you know, I've read First Samuel twenty-one, but I never, until a couple of weeks ago, really heard this story. And so, in First Samuel chapter twenty-one, it says that um, David went to the town of Nob to see Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he saw him, and he said, "Why are you alone?" Why is no one with you? So keep in mind that at this point for David, he is the commander of a thousand men. He is the most successful warrior in Israel. He is hated by the king and everybody knows him. So David's not going anywhere by himself. He's not going anywhere without his army. He's not going anywhere. And even if he does, the king hates him. So why would you invite him over for dinner? I mean, I'm not inviting the most hated enemy of the king to my house for supper. So Ahimelech is legitimately scared when David just shows up unannounced and he's by himself. And instead of telling the truth, instead of telling Ahimelech why he's really there, David decides to lie. And he says, The king has sent me on a private matter, David said, 
He told me not to tell anyone why I'm here. I've told my men where to meet me later. I thought, we make up the stupidest excuses when we're hiding something. David was hiding, and he came up with the lamest excuse for why he might be there. And then I thought, where is the man who at one time said, I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies. This is the Lord's battle. He will give you to us. And not only that, David's in the tabernacle. He has gone to where the presence of the Lord is, where the Ten Commandments are. David knows the Lord. He knows the Word. He knows that the commandments say, do not lie. So why would he lie? Except that knowledge isn't enough. Knowledge wasn't enough at that moment. Application would have been enough. Spiritual maturity comes from doing what God's Word says, not just hearing it. We hear it all the time. But there was no application. Think about the New Testament. Think about who knew, this is not rhetorical, who knew more Scripture, who knew more about God's Word than anybody else in the New Testament? That's right, the Pharisees. Okay, who was responsible for killing Jesus? The Pharisees. They knew more Scripture than anybody. They just didn't apply it. And then I thought, here's the big question. Here's the big question of the day. Why does it matter if David lied? What difference does it make? He's on the run. He thinks he needs a plan. He doesn't see how God's working this out. He thinks he has to fix it himself. And so he decides, what difference does it make if I tell a little white lie in order to keep myself alive? And, and I really think because sin never stops until there's real repentance, he just continues on with the lie. In, verse, in the next verse, verse 3, he says, David said, now, what is there to eat? Give me five loaves of bread or anything else you have. And the priest said, he said, I don't, I don't have any regular bread, the priest replied. But there's the holy bread, which you can have if your young men have not slept with any women recently. And David says, oh, don't worry. He replied, I never allow my men to sleep with women while we're on a campaign. And since they stay clean even on ordinary trips, how much more so in this one? I'm thinking, like, yeah, my men are perfectly clean. My imaginary men that are not here with me now because, yeah, they're clean. They don't exist. And he says, since there was no other food available, the priest gave him the holy bread, the bread of the presence that was placed before the Lord in the tabernacle. It had just been replaced that day with fresh bread. This bread was just an offering to the Lord. It's just something they baked. They put it in the, in the tabernacle. It was an offering unto the Lord. And that was the bread. That bread was never intended to be for David. It wasn't his bread. But the priest probably saw that he was, he was in physical need. And there's a really cool story over in the New Testament where Jesus talks about it too, but you're going to have to look that one up on your own. But all of this is just keeps compounding, compounding. And then there's this really odd verse, 1 Samuel uh, 21 and verse 7, he says, Now Doeg the Edomite, Saul's chief herdsman, was there that day, having been detained before the Lord. And, and we don't really know exactly what that means. I don't know if he went to the priest to seek counsel and the Lord just haven't given an answer yet. We don't, we don't really know. And it, it's so odd that it's kind of tucked in here. It's just like a, a moment and then we don't even hear anything else about him. And then all of a sudden... <laughs> David's life just feels like it comes full circle. And he says, 
David asked Ahimelech, do you have a sword or a spear? The king's business was so urgent, I didn't even have time to grab a weapon. The greatest warrior in all of Israel left home without a weapon. Okay, there are people in the room who don't go to Walmart without a weapon. Okay, myself included. All right, I don't think David leaves his home running for his life in good sense and leaves without a weapon. And Ahimelech says, I only have the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah. It's wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. Take it if you want it. There's nothing else here. And David says, there's nothing like it. Give it to me. And I kept thinking about... What was it like the second time David picked up that sword? At some point in time... He had taken it to the tabernacle. There were all kinds of things in the tabernacle that were, that were significant or that were um, ways of reflecting back on God's faithfulness. There was a jar of manna. There's the, the menorah. There's um, the Ten Commandments. There are all these things to show God's faithfulness. And it, there's, it's not recorded in Scripture, but at some point in time, eventually, what must have happened is David took the sword to the tabernacle and said, this represents the battle that the Lord won. I want to leave it here so other people can see it. They'll see God's faithfulness. They'll know when they see this sword that God, the Lord of heaven's armies, is in control. And Himelech says, that's all I've got. And he says, I'll take it. And it's like he literally took his life back in his own hands. I have dreaded this moment and this message for three weeks. I don't have any idea what God would have done to save the day. I don't have any idea. We'll never know. David didn't give him a chance. But I thought about how many times have I said, God, you are taking too long. I don't have any idea how you're going to work this out. This is not going according to my plan. I don't like that when I want a yes, you might say no. I'll just do it myself. So David takes the sword. And he leaves. And he goes, ironically... Um, to Gath, which is where Goliath is from. And he tells the Philistines that he wants to join up with them and fight against the Israelites, and they don't believe him because they know who he is. And so I guess he thought that they were going to capture him and torture him or something. Anyway, he literally then begins to act crazy. He starts scratching at doors and drooling at the mouth so they'll let him go. And so he runs away from there too, and he finally ends up in Judah, and word gets back to Saul that that's where he is. And so Saul, of course, is furious all over again. He now knows where David is, and so he, he's gathering up people to go and get him. And, and in, in 1 Samuel 22, 
in verse 9, we hear about Doeg again. Doeg had been there when David went to Himelech at the tabernacle. And Doeg saw what was going on, but he didn't know the whole story. But it didn't stop him from talking anyway. You probably know those kind of people too. And it said, Then Doeg the Edomite, who was standing there with Saul's men, spoke up. He said, When I was at Nob, he said, I saw the son of Jesse talking to the priest, Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. Ahimelech consulted the Lord for him. Then he gave him food and the sword of Goliath the Philistine. King Saul immediately sent for Ahimelech and all his family who served as priests at Noah at Nob. When they arrived, Saul shouted at him, Listen to me, you son of Ahitub. What is it, my king? Ahimelech said. Why have you and the son of Jesse conspired against me? Saul demanded. Why did you give him food and a sword? Why have you consulted God for him? Why have you encouraged him to kill me? As if he's trying to do this, as if he's trying to do this very day. But Sir Ahimelech replied, Is anyone among your servants as faithful as David is, your son-in-law? Why, he's the captain of your bodyguard, a highly honored member of your household. This was certainly not the first time I had consulted God for him. May the king not accuse me and my family of this matter, for I knew nothing at all of the plot against you. David really wasn't plotting to kill Saul. He wasn't doing the right thing either. You will surely die, Himelech, along with your entire family, the king shouted. And he ordered his bodyguards, kill these priests of the Lord, for they are allies and conspirators with David. They knew he was running away from me, but they didn't tell me. But this is so heinous that it says Saul's men refused to kill the Lord's priest. That's how awful this was about to be. Then the king said to Doeg, you do it. So Doeg the Edomite turned on them and killed them that day, 85 priests in all, still wearing their priestly garments. Then he went to Nob, the town of the priests, and killed the priests' families, men and women, children and babies, and all the cattle, donkeys, sheep, and goats. Only Abathar, one of the sons of Ahimelech, escaped and fled to David. When he told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord, David exclaimed, I knew it. When I saw Doeg the Edomite there that day, I knew he was sure to tell Saul, now I have caused the death of all your father's family. Why does it matter that David lied? Because his sin caused the death of an entire village of people because he took matters in his own hands. My sin never, ever only affects me. Your sin will never, ever only affect you, no matter how well you think you've hit it. Taking matters in our own hands, it may feel good for a moment, and it never ends in good. Never. I don't, I don't know how God can save the day for you or for me, for the things that are awful. I don't have any idea. But I know that He's faithful.
I know that he can. And I know if he chooses not to, it is for your good and his glory. There was a question in the the devotion that we were doing in Haiti, and it said, do you believe God can be trusted with what you find most difficult to surrender? Are we just going to do what he says? When are we going to stop just hearing the word? We come in here week after week after week after week and finally say, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do what he says to do. I'm going to do what he says to do. If it costs me my life, I'm going to do what he says to do. He knew, David knew the law. We know the law. You just got to do it. And then I thought about how, and there's been twice this week, I've been asked a question, somebody else has been asked a question, why is Simple Church different? Good luck explaining that. You know, but I thought, okay, so what if, what if we become a people who truly will not let each other be dragged away to sin. James chapter 1, verse 14, it says, temptation comes from our own desires which entice us and drag us away. That's exactly how it feels when you get caught up in sin. You feel like you're being dragged away. What if we become people who, in, in a heart of love, we know each other well enough, we pour into each other well enough, we let people know us well enough that when we see each other in trouble, about to make a drastic mistake like David did, that we go to each other and we say, hey, I need you to listen to me. I need you to focus. <laughs> right here, let me see your little face. So I thought about, um, I thought about Kenny, you know. Sometimes we're friends, but sometimes we're not. And all right, Kenny, come on. Kenny has a lot of hobbies. I don't know if you know this. Um, one of them actually is pointing out my sin in particular. Mm. That's how it feels sometimes anyway. So you can sit in these chairs if you want to. Do you want to sit in the chairs? Can you hear me now? I don't know. Brown. All right, so we don't have to sit because I'm nervous. So... At um, several times probably now, Kenny and I have had some uh, very, very painful conversations. And he is a person in my life who thankfully will say the hard things. Who will say, hey, you're just flat out wrong. And I got to thinking about these question, you know, why did it matter that David lied? Why does it matter what we do? Why does it affect other people? And so I, wo I woke up early one morning wide awake and felt like God had given me these questions to ask him about some of these times that we've had these confrontations, because I think it's important for us to understand why somebody would come and do that. Why do I care enough to go to somebody and say, I see what's going on, and I want to help. So here's my first questions for you, if, you'll, if you can answer them. So I didn't, I didn't know these questions beforehand, by the way, so this is completely on the floor. Dun, dun, dun. I told you it was a circus. Um, all right, so why would you come to me and confront my sin? Why, why in the world would you do that? 
many reasons, but ultimately, uh, when you care about the truth, and the truth is what matters, you stand boldly for the truth, you try to as best you can. Um, and when I see somebody rebelling against the truth, rebelling against the way God's word lays it out, trying to put this gently, but there's no way to put it. It hurts me because I see it almost as an insult to God. Um, that I love you ultimately, but I love God more. And I know that if you're in your right frame of mind, that you love God too. And you really don't want that for your life. So I try my best to help you see what I see. Because I know, I know that ultimately that you don't want that for you either. So how do you, how do you pick the moment? It was one, how, I mean, we weren't here. We weren't at your house. How do you pick the moment? How do you know the moment to confront? You guys know that I'm follower follower of the Holy Spirit let the Holy Spirit lead me in whatever it is that I do and I, I listen and it has to be a moment where we're alone and, and I know that we can just talk for just a few minutes um, but I, I don't ever want to belabor the point whenever I try to confront somebody in that situation I, I try to do it in such a way that I say, here's the truth. You know the truth just like I know the truth. So I just kind of lay it out there and then I let the Holy Spirit do the work. I don't try to force it down somebody's throat. I just, here's the situation. Here's what I see. Here's what you see. We both see the same thing. And then I just kind of walk away and I say, you know, and, and and if at that point you want to respond in some way, that's fine. Um, but I'm still letting the Holy Spirit do the work, and I just I listen. And, and then ultimately, the message that I always walk away from is that I love you and I care about you, and that's the reason I wanted you to know what I see, and that we both see the same. So it's a, trying to pick a time that's allowing us some time, but not too much time to be somewhat in a public setting, but also in such a way that I can talk with you one-on-one. -on -one. So those are kind of the things I look for, I guess. So you don't have to be specific to me with this question, but... <laughs> um, I'm, I'm certain I'm not the only one you've had difficult conversations with. So what have you seen accomplished after something like this takes place, after you've confronted, after you've had these difficult conversations? What's accomplished? I have to be completely honest. Um, I mean, I would love to stand up here and tell you that every single time I 
confronted somebody in their sin that uh, they said, you know what, you're right, and I see it, and I'm hurting over it, and I'm so thankful that you pointed it out, and I want to go to God, and I want to run to God, and repent of my sin, and turn back towards Him, and that does happen. God is glorified through people allowing their lives to be changed, but I've also uh, sat across the table from somebody at lunch that looked at me in the eyes and said that I'm done. I've thrown my Bible in the trash. Uh, I've tried long enough. I've prayed long enough. And I've given up. And I don't want anything to do with God. So I've seen both sides of the coin. I've seen people that were in leadership positions go both directions too. Some of them pursue God wholeheartedly and run to God and they're stronger men and women as a result. And then I've seen some that said, enough's enough. I've tried long enough. I've waited long enough. Just like what you were talking about tonight. I've waited long enough. Keith is talking about somebody he knows that has said the same thing done. I don't really have a relationship with God anymore. The end result is not what drives us. The truth is what drives us. We don't we, we leave the end result up to God. You know, God's there. He's reaching out with open arms through your words and they have a choice as to whether or not they respond run to him or run away from him. Sometimes we always think it's a fairy tale ending, you know? It's not. It's not always happily ever after. That's just reality. And that's with any person's walk with God. We talked in Haiti. We just had like this weird moment one night where we were standing around talking about Simple Church and um, Kenny kept saying he said I we just got to the point where we just said, what if we just read the book and then we just do what it says? It's just that simple. We just read the book, we read the Bible, and we just do what it says. But we got to do what it says. We got to do it. We got to do the hard stuff. If you read on a few chapters later, there's a story about David and Abigail. And Abigail goes to David before he's about to make another stupid decision. And she says, when the Lord has done all he promised and has made you leader of Israel, don't let this be a blemish on your record. And I heard somebody say, what is the story you want people to tell when there's nothing left but a story to tell? What do you, what do you want? How do you want the story to go? Do you want the story to be how you saw a friend being dragged away into sin but you didn't do anything? Or do you want your story to be how God had been faithful before but you didn't think he would be faithful again? Or that God was calling you. Jesus wants a relationship with you, but you never, you never surrendered. That you, you didn't choose the hard right. You chose the easy wrong. What do you want your story to be when there's nothing left but a story to tell? We're telling a story about David. What kind of story are we going to tell about us? You got anything else? David was known as a man after God's own heart, right? 
He's recorded in biblical history as a man who's after God's own heart. Yeah, David had some pretty severe screw-ups in his life, including this one we read about. People oftentimes want to live in their mess-ups, and they want to stay in that place, and they want to be defined by that because they think they deserve that. That's what they think they deserve. See, that's not the picture of grace. The picture of grace is one where we get what we don't deserve. And it's all about what you do from this point forward. It's all about what do you do from here? Regardless of how bad you've messed up in the past, regardless of what you've done before, it's all about what you do now. So don't stay in that place of regret and shame and heartache about the things that you've done. Instead, get up and run towards Jesus. Let him give you a new heart. Let him restore to you the joy of his salvation. Let him make you a new creation. Let him continually do that. Be known for what God has done in your life. And if he's done it multiple times, be known for that, you know? Don't sit there in that place of despair and think that this is what I deserve. I made my bed, so I'm going to lay in it. It's not how God works. It's not how God works. And when I talk to somebody about their sin or the place that they're in, my desire is not to crush them. My desire is that they be restored. That's God's heart, is that you be restored. You pray. Father, you're a good God. You're one that knows the place that we're in. God, you send us people that approach us in love. People that lovingly reach out to us with truth. And God, you use them to help restore us. God, I'm so thankful for the hard conversations, for the struggles. God, as we as Christians, as we as Christ followers, as we struggle together, as we try to help one another. God, I pray that we remember that it's all about restoration. It's always been about restoration. From the time that man sinned against you, it's been about restoration. When the serpent was in the garden, it was about restoration. Even from that very moment when God said, you may bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. This was a prelude to what Jesus Christ would do. So, Lord, I pray that people would not just stay in the place of despair and shame that they're in. But, God, that they would run to you, desperately run to you. There may be somebody here that feels like maybe they've waited too long for God to rescue them. Or maybe they've prayed enough prayers and asked God so many times to fix a situation in their life, but they are still in the same situation. God, I pray that they would not give up, that they would lean on brothers and sisters in Christ. God, that we might be a voice of truth to them, to tell them 
the simple truth that God loves them and God wants to be close to them and God doesn't want them to carry around that shame and that burden that he wants to set them free that he wants to restore their hearts that he wants to make them new God I pray that they would hear that today may the people in this place may they feel the presence of God and may they feel your love and may you receive glory as they run to you Father, thank you for allowing us to come to you and to cry out to you for help. You are so good and you are so full of grace. And we say thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Everyone stand.